In this podcast, Dr. Andrew Crystal presents an overview of the human circadian rhythm, what we know about its anatomy and genetics, and the extremely important effects it has on our sleep, wakefulness, and overall health. In this talk, we're going to first have an introduction, which will include reviewing a case vignette and going over the objectives of this effort. And then we're going to talk about the basic properties of the circadian rhythm and then review the anatomy and genetics. We're going to also talk about the effects of the circadian rhythm on sleep-wake function and then the role of circadian rhythm in health and in disease. Mr. B is a 45-year-old man who works for the police department of a small town in North Carolina. He was sent to me for evaluation for, quote, probable narcolepsy, end quote, by his police department. And he told me that he had experienced sleepiness and irritability, problems in maintaining his job performance at the level that he had previously been able to maintain, and had limitations in his social activity and some trouble falling asleep as well. And and just to illustrate the severity of his sleepiness, he had had two car accidents uh, due to falling asleep while driving. Now, he had reported some frequent upper respiratory infections as well, uh, and had no other health or psychiatric problems. When I explored the onset of these uh, symptoms, uh, our patient reported that the problems began approximately four years earlier when he started his new job, but had never had any problems with being sleepy or difficulty sleeping at night uh, before before the job uh, began at that time. And in his job, he, he told me that he was required to work at least one to three night shifts per week. In terms of other sleep or related difficulties, he had no history suggestive of narcolepsy, breathing-related sleep disorder, voluntary sleep deprivation, or other sleep difficulties. So based on this history, uh, the diagnosis is shift work sleep disorder. And uh, the clear confirmation of this came when I suggested that uh, he stop doing his shift work for a period of time to see if his symptoms resolved. And when he did so, uh, he had a complete resolution of all of his difficulties, including daytime sleepiness going away, his job performance improved, his social life uh, also improved. He had more energy to do things. He stopped having insomnia, and uh, his uh, problems with upper respiratory infection seemed to improve as well. This case is an example of a very common problem uh, that most physicians know relatively little about, and that's called shift work sleep disorder. This effort uh, is aimed at helping uh, people to appreciate the physiology, prevalence, and consequences of shift work sleep disorder and to understand better how to diagnose this problem when encountered in clinical practice. Now we're going to review the basic properties of the circadian rhythm. The circadian rhythm was discovered sometime in the 1700s, although people probably were aware of it uh, for many years before that, but the experiment very uh, clearly and strikingly illustrated uh, the existence of this this phenomenon in around 1729. The paper described an experiment with plants showing that they have uh, autonomous day-night cycling of their physiology that is autonomous of what's happening outdoors. And the way this was demonstrated is an experiment was carried out with plants based on the observation that uh, that plants have leaves that open and close uh, 
over the course of the 24-hour period. There, some plants have leaves that are open during the day, and then they close up at night. So the experiment that was carried out to see if this behavior continued, whether or not light was present. That is, the assumption was that this behavior was being driven by the, uh, the, the light uh, coming from the sun during the day. So uh, a plant was, uh, a series of plants were put into a, a uh, chamber where no light was allowed in, but it was possible to peek in to see what was happening periodically. And it turned out that during the day, the leaves opened whether light was present or not, and during the time when night occurred, the leaves would close whether or not uh, you know, th th there was any day-night changes in the external uh, lighting. So this was a clear evidence that something biologically was going on in this plant that was not being driven by the changes in light in the environment that was related to, to, to important physiologic changes uh, that as if the clock, this plant had a clock, as if there was an internal means by which this plant was biologically able to tell the time of day. And this really launched uh, the field of circadian rhythm research and led to the appreciation of, of this phenomenon. And we now define the circadian rhythm as a self-sustained rhythm of biological processes. And, and this is observed in in, in nearly all species, and it entrains the organism to the environmental day, light, and dark cycle. That's one important aspect of it. But increasingly, we've become aware that it also has an important role in synchronizing organ systems to optimal phase relationships with each other. That is, the, the timing of release of insulin with um, you know, levels of uh, cortisol in the blood and, and a variety of different biological processes are all, uh, uh, the, the timing of these events are all have to be orchestrated to a, a, a fine degree. And it turns out that the circadian rhythm is the means by which this happens. Now, uh, the, the, there are a number of different kinds of ways to, to demonstrate in, in, in humans and other animals the variation over the course of the 24, roughly 24-hour period of, the, uh, of many biological processes. There are several that have been um, studied the most. They lend themselves most easy, easily to experiment, and one of those is the body temperature. That is, if you uh, can record core body temperature, this is done either uh, rectally or through uh, intra-abdominal, intraperitoneal recordings, a uh, number of other sorts of, of, of measurements of this type, you see a fluctuating pattern that, uh, uh, that is characterized by an oscillation from uh, periods of elevated temperature to low temperature that cycles on the order of about 24 hours. Uh, the variation is only about 2 degrees centigrade, but that's actually pretty significant for our core body temperatures, and it's maintained that way on a regular basis uh, for throughout our lives. But temperature isn't the only uh, thing that you can measure that shows uh, this kind of rhythmicity. There are many, many kinds of measures, and uh, among them are plasma melatonin, which increases every uh, evening and, and through the early part of the night. Plasma cortisol, which increases over the course of the night towards morning and peaks around uh, the time of waking in the morning and then diminishes throughout the day. And these cycles happen uh, under exquisite control. They can be 
they can uh, be dysregulated by processes. They can be modified, but they follow the circadian rhythm in that there's uh, they're endogenous, recycling independent of external cues based on a, a, a clock uh, that we seem to have just like plants seem to have them. Probably the most important factor that modulates the circadian rhythm is light. Now, the circadian rhythm can, uh, oscillates, it, occur, it exists uh, even if light is removed, but light is a very important uh, means of, of changing the circadian rhythm. Everyone is probably aware that if they travel to a new time zone, if you fly to another place, uh, your body will temporarily be on a different schedule than the environment is, and that's because the circadian rhythm carry, you know, that you that you developed and maintained at one point. Uh, in one place persists, and however, it doesn't persist indefinitely. The the more you stay in that new environment, uh, the the more your body will align with the new environmental uh, clock, and and this is created by cues that come in to tell us when is daytime and when is nighttime. And the most important of these is light, and it turns out that. Light does not equally affect the circadian rhythm uh, and when, it, when it hits us at different points in our circadian phase. If it hits us soon after we wake up in the morning, then it moves our tendency to go to bed and to wake up earlier. If it hits us late in the evening and or early in the night, it will tend to make us uh, stay up later and sleep later. And then there are periods of the day where it has no effect at all. But it, this is, it was a critical observation because it was uh, identified as, as a means by which, and the most important means by which it is possible to modify this cycle and explains how we can travel to new places and, and shift to, ad, to adapt to those new places. But there are, there are other factors besides light. There are a number of inputs and outputs of the circadian rhythm, like light, but others are when we eat and being active and uh, things like caffeine and all these are, are things that have inputs to to uh, the, our internal clock. But our internal clock has critical outputs that um, alter our function. And this is what leads to a number of the observable phenomena, like that when you go to a new time zone, you'll have an upset stomach. Why would you have an upset stomach? Well, you get an upset stomach because you're eating at a time which is out of sync with when your body is expecting to eat. And so hormone uh, levels, uh, things like insulin and, and um, uh, release of, of other digestive-related hormones are not in sync with when you're eating. They're happening to a degree uh, based on the old time zone uh, clock. And uh, so there, there are outputs of the circadian pacemaker, if you will. There's a pacemaker that we, we clearly seem to have, just like plants do. And outputs involve brain functions, like when you tend to be alert and when you tend to be sleepy, uh, hormone levels, and then also critical output is the autonomic nervous system, which has a number of important uh, functions related to maintaining proper day-night timing. And these outputs all together coordinate to lead to our, our synchronized behavior and physiology in, in sync with, its other, with all the pieces being in sync with each other and being in sync with the environment. Now we're going to talk about the anatomy and genetics of the circadian rhythm. It turns out that um, there are many clocks in the body, if you will, 
in some ways, it, it, it could be reasonably argued that every single cell in the body has its own clock. Um, that is left alone, many processes in the single cell will continue to, to oscillate on a, on a rhythm uh, somewhere vaguely around 24 hours, but, but not necessarily uh, exactly in that range. Um, but we seem to have a master clock that synchronizes all of the, the, the periodic behavior in our body. And, and this is in the region of the brain called the hypothalamus, and it's in a small area called the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus. So this is really the seat of our circadian rhythm, if you will. It's the master clock of the body. There are a number of ways that we know that the suprachiasmatic nucleus is the seat of the circadian rhythm. Uh, the simplest is that if you lesion this area of the brain, the circadian rhythmicity goes away. For example, normally you have uh, melatonin being produced by the pineal gland under the control of the suprachiasmatic nucleus. If you uh, are exposed to light, it suppresses the melatonin output via uh, one of the important inputs to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is via the retinohypothalamic tract, a tract of neurons that runs from the retina uh, right to the, uh, the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus. But if you lesion the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, you stop having cycling, light stops to, ceases to affect our day-night cycling or our day-night related behaviors. If you uh, remove cells of the suprachiasmatic nucleus, they continue to have circadian rhythmicity uh, in, in, in terms of glucose uptake, neural firing rate, gene expression, uh, at, in vivo, and uh, that that there are self-sustaining oscillations of the slice of the, of, of a set of cells from the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Uh, in addition, and as, as I mentioned a moment ago, another critical piece of evidence is that if you lesion the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the circadian rhythm disappears in organized circadian rhythm. That is, if, if you transplant the suprachiasmatic nucleus from one animal into another the recipient animal will manifest the circadian rhythm uh, of the donor, indicating that this, this area is clearly capable of entraining um, biological activity and driving a circadian process on its own. Now, uh, there, the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus seems to achieve a Herculean job here of, of, of synchronizing activity in a wide range of cells through, throughout the body and, and, and very complex behaviors. And it can only do this because it has important outputs to a number of different areas of the brain. And these include uh, the dorsomedial hypothalamus, the ventral lateral preoptic nucleus, the ventral medial hypothalamus, the lateral hypothalamic area, the paraventricular hypothalamus, and the subparaventricular zone and the medial preoptic area. Well, for many people, these these areas names sound like gibberish and they may have no meaning. But it's just important to realize that areas like the lateral hypothalamic uh, region are critical for maintaining wakefulness and for modulating eating behavior. Um, the periventricular hypothalamus is critical for uh, modulating the release of corticosteroids and melatonin. Uh, the ventrolateral preoptic area is probably the most important area of the brain for uh, enhancing sleep. And uh, the, the medial preoptic area is a critical area for modulating thermoregulation. So all of these um, regulated functions, eating, temperature, sleep, hormone release, are all uh, 
regulated by areas that the suprachiasmatic nucleus has important influence on, and it's through these connections that this remarkable capacity to synchronize activity and behaviors and, and biological functions is achieved by a very small part of the brain. Now, it's been known for quite a while that the circadian rhythm is a process that is under genetic control and regulated and modifiable by genetic manipulations. And one piece of evidence for this is that if you inhibit protein synthesis, you inhibit the circadian rhythm and the circadian cyclicity. Another piece of historical information is that identification that you could modulate the circadian rhythm by genetically was in fact the first evidence that a behavior was uh, was controlled genetically and could be modified genetically. Seymour Benzer at uh, Caltech was able to breed different circadian behavioral patterns into fruit flies, and uh, and this was a monumental achievement in the history of genetics research. In fact, before that, it was possible to uh, you know change the color of, of, of animals' eyes or their hair, or uh, you could make a wing into a an arm or something like that, but people, but people really were not able to change behaviors or modify behaviors, and so in some ways this was a landmark achievement. And uh, it turns out that it was, there are a relatively small number of, of, of genes and proteins that are the fundamental basis for this biological clock that exists in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and these can be manipulated, and, um, and this is, was first identified in the fruit fly, but uh, has been verified in many other species, including humans. In humans, it turns out that there's a biological clock uh, which has a number of components, including um, a series of peptides that are synthesized in the nucleus, and they uh, are then diffused into the cytoplasm. And in the cytoplasm, uh, they bond with each other, and having bond, bound, having bound to each other, they can then diffuse back into the nucleus and uh, have influence on their own synthesis via a series of intermediate steps. And the, the critical uh, genes related to this have names like uh, clock and per for period and um, cry, C-R-Y. And uh, these different genes that make up this clock uh, form the basis for the cycle that we that we and other animals experience. It takes about 24 hours for these proteins to be synthesized and then to bind and, and transfuse and diffuse back to the cytoplasm and then turn off their own synthesis and then the process starts all over again. And, and this is also uh, been found to be the level at which some modification of the process occurs. For example, light can lead to uh, degradation of some of the dimers of, of, of the peptides that uh, are synthesized as part of this clock. So it's a chemical clock that exists in the cells of the suprachiasmatic nucleus that seems to uh, be, be underlying the cyclicity that many organisms experience. There are many examples in the fruit flies uh, of genes that can be manipulated that alter the circadian cycle, including the period genes and the, the clock genes and, and, and others, BMOL. But, the, but there's also evidence in humans that the tendency to, uh, to have a preferred sleep-wake schedule runs in families. And uh, I think many people are probably aware of this. They either know somebody or they themselves 
uh, have a tendency to, to be an owl that is stay up late and sleep late or be a lark, go to bed early and, and get up early. And they may be aware that this is something they've seen in their relatives. They may also be aware that uh, that people who have these tendencies tend to have them throughout their lives, although it changes some over the lifespan. It's pretty it's pretty hard to, to buck that trend, and it tends to be a characteristic of a person. These are all signs that these there may be genes uh, at work controlling this behavior, and, and in fact, that is often true. There are many families that have very strong uh, types of circadian rhythm uh, uh, behaviors that that uh, characterize them. And for example, the, the tendency to, to go to bed very early and get up early, which is referred to as a sleep phase advance, has been found to be linked to a change from serine to glycine, a mutation in the human period 2 gene, for example. It's highly penetrant autosomal dominant trait. Similarly, the tendency to stay, to stay up late and to sleep late, which is referred to as a sleep phase delay, has been associated with the human period 3 gene and a couple of other genes. Uh, that, uh, that that have been identified in, in relatively recent research studies. Now, there's uh, much more to be said about the genetics of the circadian rhythm, but at this point, I'd like to move on to talk about uh, some more specific issues related to sleep-wake function. Earlier, I talked about the outputs of the suprachiasmatic nucleus and the regions of the brain that are influenced by it and, and how that can lead to important physiologic changes, but among those, uh, changes are specific changes related to sleep, and I want to review quickly now the re those regions again and talk about um, about the pharmacology of how uh, or modulation of those areas might be likely to to affect sleep at a pharmacologic level. The most important of these, as I mentioned earlier, was probably the ventrolateral preoptic area, at least in terms of sleep promotion. That area is the location for a number of cell bodies that release gamma immunobutyric acid, which is the predominant inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain and uh, is thought to be one of the most important means of enhancing sleep, that is promoting sleep. So turning on that area is likely to make people feel sleepy or to stay asleep. Another of the areas we discussed, the lateral hypothalamic area, is where there are neurons that uh, have as their transmitter hypocretin orexin. This is a peptide discovered relatively recently that promotes wakefulness. Uh, you may be aware that lesions of hypocretin orexin neurons or a loss of those neurons seems to lead to uh, the, the human, well, the, the disorder, narcolepsy, which can be um, observed in a number of animal species and in humans, and that's marked by difficulties maintaining wakefulness. And it, this is partly reflective of the fact that hypocretinorexin is critical for maintaining wakefulness uh, over the course of the day. Another important sleep-wake area that is modulated by the suprachiasmatic nucleus is the paraventricular hypothalamus, which is uh, involved in the release of melatonin. And melatonin increases in blood levels and is released uh, as it gets to be evening and as, as darkness occurs. And, uh, and it has a sleep-promoting effect, uh, the mechanisms of, of which are, are incompletely worked out. But between uh, the, the ventrolateral preoptic area, lateral hypothalamic area, and paraventricular hypothalamic regions, we have three of the most important uh, 
pathways for modulating sleep-wake function. And um, I think this these explains uh, to an important degree uh, how it is that the suprachiasmatic nucleus might affect sleep-wake function and some of the pathways by which this is likely to occur. The circadian rhythm uh, re regulates sleep-wake processes primarily by turning on uh, wakefulness. And uh, the sleep is, is regulated uh, by this tendency to, to stay awake, but by, as well as what we call a homeostatic drive for sleep. So that's the, the most commonly uh, held model of sleep usually identifies two separate processes, one a homeostatic one and another a circadian one. And the homeostatic aspects of sleep are that the longer you're awake, the more you feel the need to sleep. That is, sleep drive increases over the course of the day uh, in proportion to the number of minutes or hours since last slept. And I think that's probably uh, very apparent to anyone who has tried to stay up uh, for extended periods of time that it gets harder and harder to do, to do so. Now, if you think about it, it may have occurred to you that uh, if, given that that's the case, how is it that we are able to stay awake for extended periods of time at all? That is, that if the longer we're awake, uh, the more sleepy we get, why don't we just fall asleep? How, what allows us naturally to stay awake in the face of, of this mounting sleep drive? And this is believed to be driven by the circadian rhythm and its wake-promoting capacity. That is, that the, 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 the clock uh, modulates the release of the hypocretin erection primarily and some other wake-promoting neurotransmitters that allow us to maintain wakefulness in the, in the face of a building tendency to, to sleep. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to get anything done. As soon as our tendency towards sleepiness would build up a little bit, we would immediately fall asleep and we'd sleep for a little while, we'd be restored, and then we'd get up again and, uh, and, and be able to, to function a little while and then we'd get sleepy. Well. This is exactly what happens in people with narcolepsy who, who have problems with the hypocretin erection system. And um, this is evidence that, in fact, one of the things that that system is doing is allowing us to maintain wakefulness over the course of the day in a consolidated way in the face of uh, building a dry, homeostatic drive for sleep. So um, this circadian drive for wakefulness inter interfaces with the homeostatic drive and the two together actually create the sleep-wake cycle that we experience. That is that we have a consolidated period of wakefulness driven by the circadian rhythm and we have a consolidated period of sleep which happens when the homeostatic sleep drive has built up and the circadian uh, system uh, allows sleep to happen because it's uh, that the time in, in the clock cycle has arrived where, where the, um, the wake-promoting systems are, are shut down and, the, and then a consolidated period of sleep emerges. Now, there is clear evidence in both experimental uh, settings as well as in everybody's day-to-day -day experience that, uh, about how these processes can interact with each other and how that they, they, they might um, lead to problems if not appropriately synchronized. For example, um, if you try to go to sleep at a time of day that your body doesn't normally sleep, you will not sleep as well. You will sleep less. Your body is, uh, if, the, if, if you're trying to go to sleep during the period of the 24-hour of the cycle when your, your circadian processes are expecting to, to have to fight sleep drive and, to try, and they are therefore trying to keep you awake, 
uh, one will find it's very difficult to fall asleep or stay asleep, or it is at least less um, possible to effectively fall asleep and stay asleep. And this is an example of a mismatch of the uh, of, of a behavior with the uh, circadian cycle, and what happens in is that you end up getting less sleep, you have disrupted sleep. And a perfect example of this is if you take a trip and you fly to another time zone. And uh, when you get there, it's nighttime in the new time zone, but it's middle of the day in what your body's used to. You try and go to sleep and you can't. Um, so uh, this is an important thing to keep in mind because it, it's going to explain how a, a number of our um, disorders of circadian rhythm are associated with disrupted sleep. A lot of it happens because of attempts to try and sleep at a time that's not a, a usual uh, sleep time as far as a person's innate circadian rhythm is concerned. Now, um, I'd just like to make a couple of comments about the physiologic effects, the effects of, of sleep deprivation, because those individuals who have circadian rhythm disorders are trying to sleep at an unfavorable time for extended periods of time. And doing so means that they've got at least partial sleep deprivation for a long period of time. And there's a, a large body of research that has now been carried out that documents the, uh, the adverse effects, the consequences of, of prolonged sleep deprivation, even if, if, if modest. And this, these effects in the, from a physiologic point of view, can be grouped into, into four types of problems. Metabolic dysfunction, for example, uh, the, be, because of the uh, sleep deprivation, one tends to see a, an increase in food intake or appetite. There's an increase in meta, metabo, metabolic rate or oxygen consumption may be observed. There's activation of the sympathetic nervous system, decrease in, in cerebral glucose utilization in, in some structures. Neuroendocrine abnormalities are also commonly observed. That is, you start to see low thyroid-stimulating hormone, decrease in growth hormone, decrease in prolactin, and de decrease in uh, the hormone leptin. There seems to be a decreased resistance to infectious disease. That is, that uh, this has been observed at a clinical level, but there also seems to be an increase in the number of circulating phagocyte cells. There's increased cytokine levels in the serum in association with sleep deprivation. And lastly, there seems to be an increase in oxidative stress as observed by an increase in serum aminotransferases. These uh, findings are largely observed from animal studies, but there's also a wealth of data demonstrating that there's impairment at a neurobehavioral level in humans. Um, we see obvious, the obvious consequence, which is daytime sleepiness, as evidenced by uh, sleep latency that shortens during the day. You see microsleeps, that is the intrusion of sleep into wakefulness, and we, you see errors on cognitive testing, including errors of both omission and commission, that is, uh, of missing errors of omission are failing to act when when, um, when action is indicated, or errors of commission where you act uh, erroneously when acting. Lastly, I'd like to discuss the role of the circadian rhythm in terms of health and disease, which is an emerging and increasingly important area of medicine. We have discussed earlier about how the circadian rhythm synchronizes the many, many peripheral clocks that exist in, in our tissues.
um, that it's been shown that that, that uh, clock genes are exist in many tissues and they have they're expressed on a rhythmic basis. And in fact, uh, it seems like roughly 10% of all of our genes are expressed in a rhythmic way across the body. And all of this behavior is entrained by the suprachiasmatic nucleus, that is that the heart, the liver, the pineal gland, these all have their own rhythms that can get out of out of sync with the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Um, and, and, and when they get out of sync, we call that a, a, an alteration in phase or, or a, a uh, phase dyssynchrony of these different oscillators. Just to illustrate the breadth of the influence of the suprachiasmatic nucleus on the periphery, um, it turns out that the, this organ projects to uh, many important areas of the body through the autonomic nervous system, including the heart, including uh, brown adipose tissue, and that's really relevant for hibernating animals primarily, uh, the kidney, liver, pancreas, adrenal cortex, white adipose tissue. And these, and, and these tissues are all regulated by these inputs from the suprachiasmatic nucleus. There are many experiments that have been carried out indicating that the suprachiasmatic nucleus is required for maintaining the normal rhythmic behavior uh, of our peripheral organs. Um, for example, um, if you look at the relationship between glucose release and food intake, this is, uh, uh, has a slow, uh, gradual oscillating uh, sinusoidal-like behavior over the 24-hour period. And um, even if you put uh, animals in an experimental paradigm where you fix their feeding at times other than when they naturally feed, this cycle continues uh, in that way. But if you cut out the suprachiasmatic nucleus, uh, then you cease to see that and you get entrainment of the glucose release to the feeding times, which while it's uh, may in some ways seem like a, a, a reasonable thing to, to have occur. It actually means that now your glucose release is not linked to many other eating-related uh, behaviors and, 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 and physiologic processes that are normally entrained to it and uh, set up, are set up for problems. I just want to point out a few rel relatively dramatic uh, observations about the role of circadian rhythm in, in health, though there are many examples of how the circadian rhythm affects our health in, in animal and in human research studies. Probably one of the most dramatic is evidence that the uh, alterations of the circadian rhythm through uh, paradigms that desynchronize uh, the different parts of the physiology from each other appear to have an effect on the survival of hamsters who have a cardiomyopathy. This is a, a model, a research model of, of cardiomyopathy in the hamster, and it turns out that by altering the circadian rhythm, uh, by desynchronizing the animals, you end up with a, uh, a, de a decreased survival period of, of those with, with cardiomyopathy, suggesting the possibility that the entrainment of all these processes is critical for maintaining health in the face of, 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 of at least this disease and possibly others. Same sorts of observations have been made in research on the effects of circadian rhythm in, in, in cancer models. It turns out that, that cellular growth and division are also thought to be under regulation by the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And in a mouse with a osteosarcoma, groups of these mice randomized to having a lesion of the suprachiasmatic nucleus uh, or a jet lag, a jet lag model, uh, or compared to control animals, it turns out those animals that had lesions of the suprachiasmatic nucleus or were 
underwent a circadian rhythm modification of, of an irregular light-dark cycle, had increase in uh, weight of these tumors over time and decrease in survival, suggesting again that that the normally functioning circadian rhythm uh, with synchronization of the of the biological processes that uh, go along with it seem to be critical for uh, for health particularly in the face of uh, certain diseases so to conclude uh, the circadian rhythm is a self-sustained rhythm of biological processes observed in nearly all species genetic and behavioral factors are both key determinants the circadian rhythm is important for coordinating and modulating sleep-wake function as well as many other biological processes. We have evidence that disturbances of the circadian rhythm cause misalignment among biological and behavioral processes, and, and this seems to be associated with disturbances of sleep-wake function as well as uh, impairing function in general, perhaps predisposing towards the development of diseases, and, and there's mounting evidence that this may impact our capacity uh, to fight off diseases and survival in the face of a number of important diseases. Hopefully this information will provide a, a basis for understanding the subsequent talks, which are going to uh, explain how disorders of the circadian rhythm are, uh, are manifest in, in different forms in the population. And these, hopefully this information will help you understand how those disorders of the circadian rhythm lead to alterations in, in, in quality of life, sleep-wake function, and potentially health. And lastly, I hope that this, uh, this introduction will uh, help allow you to better understand how to identify people with uh, different types of circadian rhythm disorders in clinical practice and, and appreciate the impact this is likely to have on their lives.